Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear... Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We have a very special two-part series with a San Francisco family called the Curtis Family C-Notes. If you do watch America's Got Talent, they are on there competing. And um, I found them through Instagram. You know how you're just flipping through and you see something cool, but you have no idea which which profile was from, I think it was either from Black San Francisco or Sheila E., both very rad uh, Instagram profiles to follow. But found them, thought they would be really good for my fiancé's podcast, Storied San Francisco, because they are uh, born and raised San Franciscans. And he pitched, why don't we just collaborate? So that's what we did. So in this part one, you're going to hear uh, Jeff Hunt from Storied San Francisco interview the family, uh, mainly the father and mother of the Curtis family C-Notes, Papa C and Mama C. And then uh, part two, which will drop on Friday, you'll hear uh, Bitch Talk Me pick up the interview um, with the family and ask some fun questions of the kids. So if you're into music like we are, good music, I should say, follow the Curtis family C-Notes on Instagram. They post a lot on there. I know they're on TikTok as well, but um, they post probably daily on Instagram and they do a lot of live sets, which um, you'll be really impressed by because the five kids all also play multiple instruments and sing. They're just kind of a rad family. I think they came from a different planet. But um, enjoy part one. Again, it's with Storied San Francisco's Jeff Hunt. And then part two on Friday will be Bitch Talk's uh, pickup with the family. So enjoy. I'm a Louisiana dude. And I'm a San Francisco dude. Um, You might as well say I'm from San Francisco because I've been here so long. Okay. Um, I started school in Jim Crow. Um, south mm-hmm. uh, in Louisiana mm-hmm. in the 60s, early 60s. I was born in the late 50s, mid-late 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, Where about in Louisiana? New Orleans, and then we moved, we kept moving to uh, run from the storms. Every time there was a storm, my family kept saying, let's get the hell out of here, let's move on. Up. Move inland. Yeah, yeah. and my mother's side of family, uh, although my mother was born in Gary, Indiana, my grandfather, who was half Chinese and half black, was in the FBI. Hmm. So he posed a lot as like a taxi cab driver and whatever J. Edgar Hoover and those guys wanted him to do. Yeah. And um, he came back to Louisiana, grabbed my grandmother, and then went back to Chicago, and they worked around the Gary, Indiana, and Chicago area, mm-hmm. and then my parents were born. My mother was born, actually, okay. and her twin brother. Oh, wow. So my grandmother had 13 children and three sets of twins, Whoa. and okay. my grandfather had a total of 15 children. 
Wow. And um, did you know a lot of those folks growing up? All oh, of yeah, them? I knew I had all, all of them, them except yeah. for the, the older two right. uh, that my grandfather had before my grandmother. Oh, got it. Um, and my mother being the old eldest, she and her twin brother. Um, and, and I'm the I'm the eldest grandson, so okay. I have uncles and aunts who are like younger than I am, right? So or around the same age, and so that was an interesting thing growing up in a in a house of fourteen. Kind of fluctuated between twelve, sometimes ten, twelve. I think at the most we had maybe thirteen, fourteen in the house at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, living in a tin shack, yeah, in in the south, but we didn't know we were poor. It's like nobody knows that it. You, when you're growing up in the south, the community, um, if you go out and say you hunt and you kill some game, you share it with the entire community. Yep. Um, and whatever else you have, everyone take this over that old man Jackson. So I grew up with that, mm-hmm. and and that carried over to when I came here okay. as a as a as a youngster, and finished you know element parts of elementary school. And then my mother and my biological dad they divorced. Okay. And then my mother, uh, in fact, my dad was one of the first black police officers in San Francisco. Okay, wow. So you came out with both of them? It was or. sort of a back and yeah, because one of the things that happened was when she tried to come out here to make a better life for us. Mm-hmm. And then she, when she and my dad came out here to do that, yeah, didn't, didn't go down so well. Right. And then so he was kind of a gambler. <laughs> And um, my mother said the last straw was when he gambled all the furniture out the house. She Ooh. was done. So um, he, he, he kind of had a little issue there. But he was a good man, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, never wanted for anything. Um, never needed anything. He always took care of us. That was always priority. Just had a weakness. And uh, so she came back to Louisiana and stayed for a while. And my grandmother made her go back to school. Okay. And so she went to, she had already had a scholarship, but she didn't, she wanted to come out west because we had family out here who owned businesses. In San Francisco? San Francisco or? and Oakland. Okay. Um, my grandmother's sister, Dahl, um, uh, used to own a restaurant in, in uh, Oakland. Okay. And then we own, you know, businesses here in San Francisco. Like Fillmore, when I was growing up here, was all black. Mm-hmm. All these businesses from here all the way damn near to the marina. Yep. And so there was always, and it was when I came out here, San Francisco was segregated. Yeah. This trip, you yep. know, these little pockets of things going on here. Yep. But black businesses thrived. Mm-hmm. Um, so you must have witnessed re- redevelopment in this area. Well, here's the interesting thing about it. I was kind of shuffled back and forth mm-hmm. to Louisiana um, because of the turmoil that was going on between my mother and my dad. Okay. Then my mother remarried, and it, was, it wasn't until my mother remarried that we began to live more of a stable life. Right. Um, 
my mother was very active in the church and active in civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the few, I think, two times that Dr. King came, she would open, she would be the open soloist oh, wow. for Dr. King. That's awesome. Um, even at the Cow Palace when he came, and he, I think he came around the corner, uh, churches I used to play with around the corner, okay. Macedonia. And um, so those are some interesting times. And mm-hmm. I don't want to be jumping all over the place, but just to kind of give you some light on what was going on with me, it was that divorce thing that kind of kept me going back and forth from Louisiana. So I spent a lot of time, you know, and this was an interesting time, too, because when she got with my dad that raised me, my father lived right around the corner from us. Hmm. And... That's a whole nother story right there that I don't even <laughs> want to get into. But the thing, the thing was, I grew up with two fathers. Right. And they were in solidarity. Okay. So who grows up with two fathers? Yeah. Who are like on the same page? Get along, yeah. You know, and then my mother is only one mother. It's always only one mother. Yeah. And so um, she was a very active person, um, a, a school teacher. And she emphasized the importance of of knowledge and learning at a very young age. And in my community, my community was filled with Black Panthers. Mm. So whether we wanted to be Black Panthers or not, we were Black Panthers. Right. Because they started as baby Black Panthers, junior Black Panthers, and then you eventually, you know, became one of the, the whatever you needed to be. But it was really out of love for community. Absolutely. And turned into something or was labeled something else. Mm-hmm. And then there was some corruption. There's always corruption in leadership. Yeah. You know, um, but for the most part, it was just designed to protect the community from police brutality, which mm-hmm. was taking place, mm-hmm. and try to clean up the drugs in the community. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we start the food programs all over America, yep. taking care of our, our elders, making sure that they were safe, getting home. Um, and from this effort came all these little, you had the Brown Panthers, you had all these other different entities that were beginning to see the, the value of family and community. Mm-hmm. And we go back to that word family for us. And so growing up here in San Francisco, I grew up in this area, but also grew up in the, in the Haight-Ashbury, mm-hmm. which all of this really kind of was connected. Yeah, I had to walk from here to Haight Ashbury, and it wasn't called Upper Haight then, right? No, it was called Haight Ashbury. Yeah, 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 this was called the Mo. Yeah, and the Field Mo went all the way up to part up partly to Haight, and then that part was called Haight Ashbury. Mm-hmm. And I went to school there, right? And my family owned a liquor store that's on the corner of Cole and. Um, Hate Street, oh, wow. which used to be called Dunkley's Liquor. That okay. was my, my dad's nephew. And I used to work in the store wow. um, during high school until he found an empty bottle of Ripple. Uh-oh. Which, Uh-oh. I don't know if you know what Ripple is. Ripple was wine. <laughs> okay. Cheap wine on top of that, like Thunderbird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that really was the end of my career. Okay as a clerk in the grocery store. <laughs> but I went to school right across the street from Kizar. Right on Frederick. Uh, Polly? I went to Polly. You know, I, I ran track. I was okay. a track star, but never hardly went to class. 
right. because it was too close to Hippie Hill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. And the hate. Yep. So I was hanging out, you know, but I read a lot. That's what kept me. And um, I was kind of like my mother's nightmare in the sense that I hated social injustice. Mm-hmm. And I was, I would sneak, and back then, parents, they spanked their child. Well, they mm-hmm. whipped down and spanked it. You got oh, yeah. beaten, you know. No. It was like, it, in fact, here's a funny story. In Louisiana, to show you how slave mentality was perpetuated, they used to take the cowhide, and they called it a gin belt. And the thing was heavy like a razor strap, right? And they keep it over the door. And then if you misbehave, they'd make you go get that gin belt or make you go outside and get a switch. And so if you came back with a switch that wasn't adequate, then they'd go out there and get the tree and come back and beat you with it, right? <laughs> well, my grandmother and my grandfather gave my mother gin belt, so we always had a gin belt in San Francisco, so you didn't want that. Yeah. But I used to justify it. I would justify knowing I'm going to get a whipping. But I would be on that front line. And I was like that at 13 years old. Wow. And this one is just like me. This one right which, here. Which one? Yeah, do we, do we want to name that one? Yeah. This is Kiki. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Kiki is just like a father. Okay. Um, she spends a lot of time in that energy field, in that mm-hmm. matrix mm-hmm. of just not really liking social injustice mm-hmm. on any level. And uh, it's, it's, it's a trip to see that and having to um, deal with that. Well, she yeah. listens to documentaries, Malcolm Angela Davis, yeah. Yeah. Well, Angela Davis, Malcolm X. She has that playing where other kids are listening to like music. She's listening to um, old debates and speeches uh, mm-hmm. from the 60s and 70s. So, so to make my story short, I mean, because it's, it's a very long story, mm-hmm. at, being in my 60s, um, the music aspect of it and the martial that. arts yeah. okay. was what kept me okay. um, grounded. When did you start playing instruments or performing? I can't remember when I wasn't. Okay. It was taken more serious because I was performing for my mother's company. would come over and she, at, three, at three or four years old, she'd have me doing the James Brown or Sam Cooke. I'd be doing something, right? <laughs> yes. Um, Jackie Wilson doing the splits and I would you know do my thing and they would throw money on the ground and so I learned how to do the splits pick the money up spin around (laughs) put it in my pocket and be strutting right and that became like this regular thing it was Mm -hmm. like back then my mother used to sing to raise money for the rent or I would dance that was all part of it yeah there would be something musical going on cooking or something you know, because it was, you know, it was some, some tough times. Um, but one thing I always had to do was I had to go back every summer because I had to work the fields. You know, we, my grandfather, um, you know, at five years old, I was working in a cotton field. Can yeah. you believe that in this, this day and age? Yeah. I wasn't picking cotton. Yeah. But I would bring them the water. I would drag the bag. And my grandmother was adamant. If you, if you could walk and you could talk... Your ass was out there working. And I, it's hot. I'm f- from close to that part of the world. It's yeah. no joke in the summer. And, you know, growing up with that mentality, I've always had a work ethic yeah. that has just been, you know, 
I know no one else with my work ethic. It's like, right. you know, just always. Got that drive. I don't like it, though, because it has kept me from relaxing hmm. the way that I know that I should because mm-hmm. I'm always kind of like tense as much as I may look relaxed mm-hmm. or look relaxed I'm always thinking about what's the next thing I got to do hmm. and uh, I haven't had a vacation I'm thinking maybe 35 years wow if 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 I had one then right and my wife and I we haven't had we haven't even had a honeymoon yet alone a vacation wow um but I will tell you when we went to America's Got Talent, it almost felt like it was a big deal. I'll say y'all earned that. But you, you mentioned martial arts. Do you want to talk about that a little bit before we move on? My Sheehan was the martial arts instructor for the Black Panthers, the Nation of Islam. We trained the police department. Um, he also worked with Master Powell, who they were, uh, they trained the CIA and FBI wow. and that kind of thing. So I was really, really deep into the martial arts thing at a young age mm-hmm. um, and then kind of left it for a little while and then I, when I moved back did a lot of a little boxing in the army um, some martial arts in, in the military and but when I moved back to here in 89 70, uh, 90 I got way more deeper into my art um, and I'd already had a black belt from way back then mm-hmm. And then when I came here, I learned the new system, which was more around combat style. Now, keep in mind, we were doing MMA with the Gracies right. Coliseum right. way back then. And we wiped the floor up with the Gracies. Okay. Our dojo did. We actually did. We had the number one dojo in the world at one time. And in part because my Sheehan, Henry James Larkin, which we endearingly referred to him as Pop Larkin, mm-hmm. known as Jim Larkin. Um, he had he had some, some teenagers off the street who were fighters. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we grew up fighting. You know, we were street kids that he wanted to teach some discipline to. And so he imparted a lot. A lot of us are gone, um, in part because, you know, we weren't, able to digest a lot of the stuff that he gave us and ended up just being taken out because we were so ominous mm. on the streets and dealing with it and people feared a lot of us. I was fortunate that I left here and went off to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I pray that I wasn't here because I had a temper just like everybody else. It's right. like you're growing up in a neighborhood. It was a survival thing. Right. Um, but mo- a lot of us are gone, just either, you know, by way of prison, murdered, mm-hmm. taking ourselves out through drugs and that kind of thing. I was able that I had parents who taught me a little more of how critical thinking needed to be in the process. Awesome. And so that was what saved me. But the martial arts has been 50 years. Yeah, wow. You know, and uh, then when I came back in the 90s, it got way more intense, and I had to go through his new system that he created mm. um, from the Larkin Bushido, and it was just, uh, it's been an amazing journey, and then now all my, my children are martial artists. We get up in the morning, 6.30, sometimes 5.30, and we're out training. Nice. You know, teaching them self-defense and, and self-discipline. 
And that's the most important thing is the, the self-discipline that teaches you to use this to fight with, mm-hmm. not this. Mm-hmm. Because it's not about using this. It's about, okay, I need to get home at the end of the day. It's a muscle. Honey, so, can you right? say it? It's, it's a podcast. Hmm? Use your mind. So my mind. Because at the end of the day, it's not about fighting. That's the ultimate last result. Mm-hmm. Learning how to use this mouth. to talk your mouth. way out of it. Mm-hmm. Using your mouth to talk yourself in your brain. Mm-hmm. To, to, to quell a situation and to make the person comfortable enough to know that you're not a threat to them. But at the same time, you're not going to let them be a threat to you. Right. But if we could have some mutual respect for each other in that, hey, at the end of the day, baby, it's all about love. Right on. And I'm not going to tell you how many situations I've talked down. I've even had people just break down and start crying, come hug me, because they never had that approach. Right. It was always this. Yeah. It's like, and then now I see them on the streets. Every time they see me, they want to come give me a hug. You know, oh, I see them misbehaving, and I can see them change what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's been quite a journey. You know? Did you say that it was uh, late 80s, early 90s? Is that when you came to San Francisco kind of for good, or, or when was that? Um, well, because of the on and off situation, I literally got kicked out of California. Okay. Um, because After I high was, school? It was during high school, but I wasn't. My mother, they caught me putting uh, weapons on the back of a truck. Mm-hmm. I was underage. Mm-hmm. And so when they put me in juvenile, I went to juvenile three or four times, never for anything other than social justice. Mm-hmm. So if they handcuffed everybody else, they handcuffed me and took me down. I was down there. I used to sneak out of the house. A couple times I was on television, and I thought I was trying to get away with it, and my mother saw me on television and she would whip me then. Yeah. I got whippings up until I was 18 years old, yeah. 17, getting ready to turn 18. And that's when I realized, okay, I got to get out the house. It's time to go. <laughs> I'm going to take this scholarship to college, and I'm just get away from this. Okay. But um, get back to your question. Your question was? Oh, just uh, when was it that you kind of uh, just came to San Francisco to stay? Like, When, when did San Francisco when did the back and forth stop? Okay, so there was a period where it was like three years. So I did the third to the fifth grade here, then went back to Louisiana um, because they needed more people back there to help with the whatever. Um, and then I came back in the seventh grade, did Everett. My children oh, yeah. all went to, some of them went to the, the same schools I went to. Yeah. That was the, and then left, came back in the ninth. In the 10th grade, I got kicked out of California. But that was cooked up with my mother up at Juvenile, who was, my mother was a school teacher. Mm-hmm. So they cooked that whole thing up. My mother let my butt stay in Juvenile this time. Because mm-hmm. they used to have it where you could come get the guy out of, get your boy, come get your boy, right? Well, this time, 
my dad was out of town because my dad used to drive Greyhound that raised me. So oh. he wouldn't let me stay in there. But my mother said he was doing a charter, I think, and my mother made up her mind, I'm going to let his butt fry in there for a while, right? Okay. So I'm in there with all of these, like, really criminal minds, minded children. I'm like, wait a minute, this ain't even me. I, I don't even think like this. Right. And then that Monday, this was on a Thursday, on that Monday, the judge, they they had used to have court right there. <laughs> and he'd come in with his robe on and his, you know, and my mother was sitting there when they brought me in. And he said, I sentence you to 16 months of log cabin. It's like, whoa, that's kind of harsh. Yeah. I was thinking to myself. Suspended sentence, you have to leave my state. Mm. That was cooked up. My mother, and then she told me later that she cooked it up. <laughs> and then she had my records expunged and all this other mm. stuff. But when I got to Louisiana, my grandparents had me walking the chalk line. I couldn't do anything, couldn't mm -hmm. go anywhere. It was like, and I realized, hey, I didn't want this. So I got myself together, came back out here in 11th grade, and got more involved in a lot more positive interaction in the community that didn't deal with such, so many things that were looked at as radical. But I got into junior achievements, the NAACP, which was a lot, but we was kind of, we were still kind of radical um, because we were actually responsible for getting the voting age to 18 in the state. Oh, wow. It was, it was us. We were I don't the ones think I knew that. That's with awesome. uh, Lieutenant Mervyn Dimely. And so I was working with what was called the Kazana Youth Council, Andre Dupre, um, Tamatra Scott, you know, Yuri Waters, all these great figures in the community during that time who they were sort of like the nonviolent aspect yeah. of the community who were getting a lot done. Um, and at that, that point, the Black Panthers were looked at as like, you know, just crazy. Mm -hmm. And this this community was crazy back then because you had Jim Jones, mm -hmm. you had the Nation of Islam, it is all in the same the block. Office, right? Jim's was in the he was in the synagogue right. where yeah. the post office is right. now. Yeah, and and the Nation of Islam was right next door. <laughs> in what is now the Fillmore, right? It was bizarre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it was like wow. <laughs> it was the strangest times, right? <laughs> and I have I had. Many of my friends who died in, in Guyana. Oh, wow. And that I grew so, up with. Okay. Whose parents, you know, went that route. Yeah. But there were some strange times growing up in, yeah. here in San Francisco. And I was off to college when I saw that whole thing go down. But I knew many of my friends who used to talk about, hey, man, I'm going down to Jones Temple, man. I don't, no, I don't want to. They left the church. And, you know, they were giving up their homes and all this mm -hmm. craziness and some of us who were grew up as Baptists and Methodists, we looked at that thing and were like, man, that's ridiculous. Right, it's out there. You know, so there was some weird, weird energy going on during that time, you know. Uh, um, and again, I was off college during that time when that, that whole thing went down. But yeah, my story is all over the place. It's kind of like Forrest Gump. Okay. You know, I just happened to be in these places where things were going on. I mean, like the riots. I was right there in the middle of that. 65 riots. Mm -hmm. I was in L.A. Just mm -hmm. happened to be there with my uncle who lived there. 
when the 92 riots went down. I was mm-hmm. in L.A. Mm-hmm. I was in the studio with the persons who orchestrated it. Mm-hmm. I was in RCA, and when the verdict went down, I saw the guy go to the phone, get on the phone and say, we are, he was talking to someone, and he said, we are no longer colors, we are a united front. Well, I was invited down there by one of my college classmates. Hmm. And he said, man, why don't you come on down? I'm in town. I'm producing the old singer from New Birth. I said, yeah, I'll come on down. So, and I'm in the studio. And when I drive off, I see these guys in white T-shirts and khaki pants pick up one of those steel garbage cans and throw it into this jewelry store and take all the jewelry out. I'm like... And as, soon, yeah, as soon as I turned down Western Street, I could see fires. As far as the eye could see, it was just, uh, wow. it was so surreal. I mean, yeah. it's like I was in all these places when all this stuff went down. Just kind of a weird, weird situation. But anyway, you know, that's kind of the short end of my story. It's, it's, it's kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been here, I've been there. You know, I did seven years in the United States Army. Um, I've been married before, you know. This is the last. This is it. <laughs> this is it. I have, yes, I have it four. Is. I have four grown children. Okay, and um, they're all doing pretty well. You okay. know, um, uh, that's the short of it. Okay, maybe we should move over to Mama then. Yeah, I think let's, talk to, okay. let's talk to Mama. Thank you, Papa. Yeah, Papa C is so interesting. It's funny because um, we've been places, and because Maestro knows so much about the city and they hear him talk, there was this major publisher that, he's an editor there, and he was like, there's a story. I, I've got to get your story. And he was like, oh, I don't have time to put it together. I, was, I don't want to do that. And then, he, and then Papa was like, it ain't over yet. And I was like, oh, that is a good book. But yeah, it's like you can take any section of his life and kind of break it down. And it's like his movie is like a saga. I was going to well, say, I got it's that a from, series, not a book. Yeah. Well, I got that from Maurice White. Earth, Wind, and Fire. When I signed with that company, mm-hmm. I was sitting there, and I don't want to take up all your time, but I was sitting there, and he was approached. Guy came in and said, we want to do your life story. And Maurice said, I just signed with them, with that company, right? Mm-hmm. And Maurice said, my story ain't over. Why don't you wait till I'm gone? Good answer. Wait till I'm gone. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy said, okay. Okay, Mama C. Uh-huh. Let's hear your story that you that you're still writing. <laughs> well, um, I guess just to keep it musical, and maybe I'll start later. I, I mean, I was not raised in a musical family. My relationship with music starting started in the performing arts, I suppose. I grew up as a competitive ice skater. Oh. Um, and I'm Tongan, so it's funny because a lot of people don't even know what a Tongan is. But people that do know, they're like, how did an Islander get involved in ice skating? It's like hockey in Arizona. Yeah. Like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, in San Mateo, they had this ice rink that was called Fashion Island. And it was like an open, it was open. So that's why it was so cool because it wasn't freezing. Mm-hmm. And... I remember when we would go there, when I would go there as a child, my brothers would go to the arcade, 
and I used to love watching the ice skaters. And there was, I was about seven years old, and then my mom caught me trying to climb over the rail so I could get on the ice. Hmm. And my parents, you know, God bless them. They they had me in ballet, they had me in tap dance, and they were like, oh gosh, another thing. And when I took to the ice, it was it was like a fish to water. I could literally just like step on and I was, it, I f- it felt very natural. And that particular ice rink, a lot of greats came out of that. You know, there was Christy Yamaguchi, um, Brian Boitano, they all mm-hmm. came out of that camp. Mm-hmm. And um, I was very fortunate to have met these people and my mom even made an ice skating dress for Christy and she did oh, a wow. show which was really great. And they were because they came from a small ice rink because it's very small compared to an olympic sized ice rink Mm -hmm. but they they felt compelled to come and and still train there from time to time and they would talk to the children were very lovely this is after they got big olympics and all that absolutely yeah and they would come by and we would be like oh my gosh why are they here but you know it was kind of like when they came to that ice rink looking back on it as a child, I was like, why are they here in this small <laughs> rink? But I realized they, some, a lot of times they were doing rehab or they were just getting ready for a show or they just wanted to get back with old friends and just kind of like, hey, let's just skate. And, and I, the, the thrill of my life was when I was able to see uh, Surya Bonali. I skate there and my ice skating coach was hired to work with her so she could become more artistic. Hmm. And um, my ice skating coach was amazing, um, Tracy Prusak, that was her name. And so when Surya Bonali stepped on the ice, it was like everybody would just back up because she was so powerful. We even saw her do a backflip, and we're like, ah! so. And then I remember like my biggest thrill because I was a horrible competitor. Hmm. I could do I could do a lot of the jumps and the spins, but competition was just. I, I just locked up. Hmm. And if it was an ice skating show, oh, I could land everything, do everything. So my my coaches used to have me on the ice and they're like, hey, just do your your competition routine for the show. Okay. And then I would do it and they would be like, oh, great. And then as soon as I hit the competition, it was just, there's something, something about that atmosphere that turned me off and they wouldn't allow me to cheer on my friends. Mm. What are you doing? Don't watch your friend. I was like, but I love Amanda. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> it's a different mindset competition, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, back then there were parents that used to cut up the ice, the girls' dresses or um, and your, ta- your tape, your cassette tape might be like tore up so you'd have to back up. So it's, it's so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but that was my first experience with falling in love with performing with music right when that how old, sorry how old oh, were you in I, I was from seven till about 14 okay 14 is old if you're mm. trying to still compete mm-hmm. nationally um but it was it largely when my father passed mm. that was when i you know from being from an immigrant family and um this is common amongst a lot of people of color talking about your feelings that's just not an option mm-hmm. especially if you're mourning it's mm. um you i think if anyone because my mom did have you know a lot of her friends 
you know, say, oh, do you guys need to talk to anybody? Mm-hmm. That just wasn't a thing. So mm-hmm. my, I don't know if that was a, I, I believe it was a huge part of me just maybe losing motivation with ice skating. But, or I just wanted to just kind of leave it all. Um, that's where music kind of left me. And that was a time in my life where I felt like, we just didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. Mm. But the one thing that I believe that really saved me was I did have a passion for reading. Okay. Like my husband, I didn't like going to class. Right. Um, I loved reading things that was not assigned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I would do my thing. I, I barely graduated high school, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad I did eventually finish. But the, I was able to go into a program where I, as a high school student, I could graduate on time if I took um, community college courses and that my senior year that's when I signed up for a history of jazz course Mm. taught by Fred Berry and that was the first time I heard Ella Fitzgerald's voice and I was in a a big auditorium and the the loudspeakers and when I say she changed my life just hearing that singing it was just washed over me and I, I got really emotional I was kind of embarrassed by how like why I was like why am I getting emotional what's going on so I didn't go to the rest of my classes I hopped into my car um, I, I just got paid from my little job at cost plus <laughs> and I went and spent all my money at Tower Records yes. I picked up as many records as I could afford by Ella Fitzgerald Sarah Vaughn and Billie Holiday that's oh, all I knew that man. like those names like he had talked about and I was like okay I'm just gonna buy up as much as I could and I lived with those records nonstop for months. Mm. And I just couldn't believe that people sang like that. And um, I then became aware of Nat King Cole. Mm. He was just like another layer. And I remember when I got my heart broken for the first time, I listened to Smile over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I had my friends would come in and I'd just be sitting. And they were like, why are you listening to this? But there, there was something that I really connected. And I, I, it was, I didn't hear anything like that on the radio. Obviously, it was you know the 90s. And I was very much a hip-hop head. I, mm-hmm. I loved it. So that being in in that environment but then being able to listen to that music and that's why I always if Fred Berry is out there I always credit a lot of my passion for American classical music to him and I started just you know just wanting to know how to sing Mm -hmm. and I didn't know what the steps were I didn't I was like oh what do you do like so I was like okay I'll sign up for a voice class and I was in a piano lab like just kind of picking up a few songs that I heard on the radio and somebody walked by and was like they heard me sing they knocked on the door they're like oh do you want to start a band <laughs> <laughs> and I was like a band I was like dude I don't I barely sing I don't know and because uh, I didn't I going into it I did not know what I was doing I was like yeah I play a little bit by ear but you know I don't know what I'm doing so I started taking more music classes and what was funny about the guy that we started, you know, playing like, you know, high school auditoriums, things like that. We were just doing whatever was on the radio. Mm-hmm. My husband knew his family. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. know him yet. Grew up but, with his dad. Okay. Yeah. And so 
Um, Playing music. A yeah. friend of mine, um, she wanted to like help me. Like, hey, I, I have recording equipment. Maybe we can record something. And I was like, okay. And I just kept in my heart. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't like it. I need, mm. I need some lessons. But mm. there were some people that I met, and I didn't like their style um, of teaching. And so she, um, her name was Helen. She met Maestro, I believe at Globe Institute. She might have gone to one of your workshops there or something. And she was like, oh, I, I met the guy that, that's going to help you. And so um, I went to the studio, and I'll never forget, <laughs> when I met him, he was in this baby blue, head-to-toe, African outfit. It's just oh, beautiful man. material. Yeah. He had long dreads. <laughs> And I remember thinking, like, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful, intimidating human being that I've ever heard. And it's not like he was, I don't want to say, like, intimidating in a bad way. It was just I've never seen anyone so confident. And it wasn't an arrogance. It was like he just he just walked up and he had just, you know, he smiled and, hi, how are you doing? And I met him with, an, like, other singers mm-hmm. that wanted to study with him. So um, he really opened the door for me um this is before we even got together of just like okay who are your favorite singers and i named them. he was like okay you got to find out who their favorite singers Mm. are and who they're influenced by Mm -hmm. and he was like i can give you a shortcut it's all gonna go back to nolens Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was like oh okay so i always down down the river through the port exactly 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 And I went on this journey. I filled up this large journal of singers and uh, where they were from, what they liked. And I found that it influenced how I thought about just uh, people around me and artists around me. And I found that I started having, because I grew up very religious, Mm -hmm. and I left um, the particular religion I was part of. And what I had found was when I left the religion, I no longer connected with people with a reward in mind, which Mm. was like heaven. Mm -hmm. It was, I connected with people just for the sake of connecting with them. Here on earth. Absolutely. And when I found through music, when I found a commonality that these people went through extraordinary um, hardships that through the music they were still able to overcome. And I found that I was able to deal with some trauma of my own Mm -hmm. because, you know, this music, American music, when people talk about soul singing, hip hop, rhythm and blues, that all comes from slavery. Mm -hmm. So when you find out the horrors of slavery Mm -hmm. and there's like details that a lot of people don't know, but when you start uncovering those things, it's like these people went through horrors and gave us this cathartic art form that everybody in the world connects with. Mm-hmm. When you can bend notes, growl, moan, it's this cathartic healing that happens. And I realized, okay, with the things that I went through, which is nothing compared to the creators and ancestors that what they had gone through in this country. Right. I was able to channel my own pain, but then also identify, you know, things that we have similar in others. Mm -hmm. By studying these singers and musicians, I was like, oh, wow, okay, 
what connects me to them, that means I could connect with anybody. Mm. And that's what I, I've, I almost became addicted to the research. And my husband then, when we got together, we were actually, it was very natural. We didn't date. It was just natural. I, and I realized, oh, I like this person. This is probably the first person that I actually like being around. Hmm. I've, you know, I've had exes, but I was always uncomfortable, slightly uncomfortable, or we didn't laugh at the same things. And I found myself just, and I was very hesitant. Well, he actually was hesitant as well because we, there's a large age difference. Mm-hmm. And, but because it was so natural for us, I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I've never really cared about what other people thought of me anyways. Why would I care now? Right. And the one of the greatest lessons that I've learned from my husband, and I shared this on Instagram on Father's Day, was um, never let anyone define you, but you. And that's a common thing. You know, people say that all the time, but when you meet someone that actually lives it, and, you know, there's stories of there's a story about him sorry honey I keep talking about you it's my thing but what I find inspiring is that he has this scar on his hand and he was the doctor told him that after um, after he healed that he would no longer be able to play the piano he said you don't have the last word Hmm. so now he doesn't have feeling in two of his fingers but he's found his own way to play and that's something that I do draw from in my mind. And it's something that I feel like a big part of my culture and my religion, I feel that's due to the religion is, um, it's sad, but a lot of Tongan people will grow up with like, oh, that's nice, that's for Palangi people, that's not for us. Mm. Palangi is white. Mm-hmm. So they might say like, oh, that's for Palangi people, that's not, that's not what we do. And then, but it's usually associated with things that are very nice. Hmm. And it's like, wait, so I grew up with that. And then my husband had to like, well, you have to reprogram. You're thinking you deserve everything. If that's what you want, don't take no for an answer. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. <laughs>